Good morning and welcome to Visionaries. I'm John LaBelle, your host, and you'll find us here on the Progressive Radio Network at prn.fm every Monday at 10 a.m. New York time. And you can catch dozens of our back shows in our archive at visionaries.podbean, that's P-O-D-B-E-A-N is Nancy, dot com. And on Visionaries, we talk with visionary people in the arts, technology, science, culture, and spirituality about how we can enrich the world and ourselves by tapping into the energies of the cosmos. Our special guest today is just one of those people, Jeremy Lent, author of The Patterning Instinct. Jeremy, welcome. Hi, thanks very much, John. It's a pleasure to be here. Great. Let me start with an idle curiosity. Uh, you're, you're, I'm in the studio. You're on the phone. What part of the world are you in? Oh, actually, I'm here in Berkeley, California. Cool. Um, uh, in the San Francisco Bay Area. Great. Okay, so um, Jeremy's the author of a new book, The Patterning Instinct. We'll talk more about his background as we go. So, Jeremy, what do you want to tell us about the patterning instinct? Well, you know, the, the book, uh, The Patterning Instinct, um, is subtitled uh, A Cultural History of Humanity's Search for Meaning. And that's pretty that's, comprehensive. Uh, yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's kind of it's a big scope. Uh, and it actually goes all the way back to when humans first evolved and, and yeah, lived 95% of our history as hunter-gatherers. And it looks at the rise of agriculture and then different, the different ways in which the early civilizations of the world made sense of the universe. Um, and then it looks at how um, thinking arose in um, ancient Greece it led to a modern way of thinking that has since become sort of global. But it also looks at a parallel um, development of thought in East Asia and the way that the traditional Chinese made sense of the universe, which is very different from how we do in the West. And the book ends actually looking at our um, present world um, as with a title called Consuming the Earth in the modern era, and the final chapter actually looks at trajectories to our future, exploring where we might be headed, where the human race might be headed. Um, and I think the, the basic um, thing that the book uh, offers is this notion that actually um, culture and our worldview shapes the values of a given uh, civilization, and those values are what have shaped history. And those values that we hold right now are um, really going to be what will shape our future. So let's, uh, <clears throat> I'm a professor, so I'm a little bit academically oriented here. So let's start with uh, how would you characterize the difference in thought between uh, ancient Greece and the West on the one hand and Chinese on the other? Primarily the ancient Greece way of thinking which then developed into our whole sort of Western mode of thought, is, uh, is kind of like a, um, a dualistic mode of thinking. It involves the sense of like a split cosmos, where the, you, you have the world down below, which is kind of polluted and where things die and everything's kind of messy. And there's this 
transcendent dimension, what Plato called um, the place of forms, where there's a sense of uh, some ideal. And, and basically everything in the regular world is like a pale imitation of that ideal. And that was applied not just to the world, but also to the human organism, to what a human is. So there was a sense of a split human between a body and a soul, where the body is what dies and um, is really like a prison to the soul, which is eternal. And, and those are, that's the sort of split cosmos that be- became uh, really the foundation for Christianity. And then in the East, in traditional China, it was a very, very different way of making sense of the universe. Everything was seen in a more integrated way. And, and the, whole, the whole universe is really seen where meaning, rather than being in some sort of transcendent dimension, meaning arose from the actual connections between everything. There was a sense of the Tao as the path of how the world worked, almost like a harmonic web of life. And that led to a very different way of understanding what a human being was, and a very different way of um, relating to the world, which led, I think, to the different paths that Chinese and Western civilization took in history. Cool. So how would you characterize uh, our world today? Right now, it's an interesting place that we're in because we're, um, we have this, this place where technology is so exciting and innovative and uh, we're experiencing change at a faster rate than ever before in human history. And at the same time, we're experiencing tons of really extreme imbalances and an imbalance between our human civilization and the natural world in which, we, uh, which we're embedded in. And uh, I, I fear that at the rate we're going, we may be really headed for a, a real precipice. I think it's very likely that in this century, we're going to see a fundamental transformation of the human experience. Which way that's going to go? Well, that's a, um, something I explore in the last chapter of my book, but I think it's very helpful for us all living in this time right now to be aware of those possibilities and to be aware of how the choices we make actually may affect that direction. Great. So let's not jump ahead too fast, and let me go back. And you use the word worldview, and maybe a lot of our listeners are uh, familiar with the the uh, new, and by new I mean the past 50 years, use of the word paradigm. Uh, what is a worldview? What is a paradigm? Why are they important? So a worldview is really um, a, like a framework of meaning that we all have implicitly, whether we even think about it or not, which helps us to make sense of everything around us, which um, helps us to feel what's right and what's wrong, why things work the way they do, um, and really what to expect from, uh, from humanity, from our lives, and, and from the future. So a worldview, for example, in... Uh, Say in early agricultural times, the worldview might have been based on this sense of um, the hierarchy of the gods, and the sense that um, you know every single thing had spirits, and those spirits were, lived in, were in this kind of hierarchies, and so you needed to please 
the kind of supreme god at the very top if you wanted things to go really well, or at least um, have a better relationship with the local gods around you. So that worldview affected pretty much everything that people did and the way they made sense of things. Of course, our worldview nowadays um, is very different than that, but it still um, implicitly affects what we do. And the thing that's interesting is that even our modern worldview is based on a number of assumptions, many of which have been shown by modern scientific insights to be wrong assumptions, and yet um, worldviews are very difficult to change. They only change once people become really aware that there's something wrong with the way they're making sense out of the world. So what would be an example of a wrong assumption? Well, um, modern worldview has been based on a couple of, um, or a few sort of, core metaphors, if you will, like ways of making sense out of nature and humans' relationship with nature that really arose in the 17th century with the scientific revolution, even though they can be traced all the way back to ancient Greece. So one of those, for example, is this belief that nature is ultimately a machine. And, and not just that it's like a machine, but many people actually think of nature as a machine, like a very, very complicated machine, but one that doesn't have any kind of intrinsic worth of its own, just like um, any kind of, you know, car or um, any other machine you have, but it is there for us to try to manipulate and engineer for our own benefit, for human, humanity's benefit. And along with that was another uh, sort of very powerful core way of thinking about nature that evolved in the, uh, again, in the scientific revolution that's become central to our view nowadays, which is that humanity's purpose on the world, our rallying cry, is to conquer nature. Um, and, and that's this incredibly, again, powerful vision of, look at all the amazing things we can do to uh, really sort of um, conquer what has been there before us and make it and work to hum- humanity's benefit. But that's these kind of core metaphors, if you will, um, bring along with them some pretty serious entailments, which have led to a lot of the imbalances we're looking at in the world today. Interesting. Uh, let me get a little academic, academies or whatever uh, on you here. And I'm uh, uh, sort of grew up academically with that uh, kind of point of view. And I was very influenced by Oswald Spengler's Decline of the West, who looks at the uh, radically different worldviews of different cultures like China, Japan, the West, Greco-Roman, etc. And uh, that way of thinking is very much out of favor in academia today. I guess maybe even without declaring it, they are very uh, materialistic claiming that, you know, our um, the way we see the world is the way it is, as opposed to a worldview. Have you encountered that, um, that uh, objection to uh, thinking about worldviews in uh, your circles? Yeah, well, you know, what's interesting is that, as you say, the, the current sort of academic way of viewing history um, is based on what can loosely be called geographic determinism. Um, and basically what geographic determinism says is that, um, you know, really um, you, the way in which history have, um, emerged, the way in which history was shaped was based 
on just core elements in the geography of places around us. And it's not based on any kind of cultural difference between one group or another. Um, and in fact, when geographic determinism first got to become more sort of mainstream thinking in the last few decades, this was a very refreshing change because before then was what you might think of as kind of um, a modernist, West, Western-oriented triumphalism that believed that there was something, you know, something essentially superior in European culture and thought, which is why uh, Europe ended up ultimately dominating the world, and this kind of Western mode of thinking became dominant. So it was really great to see a more um, open and um, global perspective in this kind of geographic determinism. And some, some people who are listening may be familiar with this book by Jared Diamond called Guns, Germs, and Steel, which was, um, has been a huge bestseller and did a great job of explaining how this kind of geographic determinism actually works, um, just in terms of crops and how the continents work and, um, and explaining why it was Eurasia who dominated um, other parts of the world rather than the other way around. But what, um, and, and since then, there's been a number of books that have taken a similar kind of theme. But what that sort of misses, and it's not that there's anything wrong with that approach. In fact, I think it makes total sense. But it's, it kind of only looks at a one-way flow from geography to, um, to culture, if you will, and to history. And, and what my book explores is this notion of a reciprocal flow, that while geography does affect cultures, as cultures develop and their values begin to shape what people do, those values actually then have an effect on history. So you have more of this kind of reciprocal flow, which is more complicated to um, kind of follow, to make sense of, <clears throat> but I think offers really a, a, a fuller view of how history actually works. Great. You know, I'm, I'm right in the midst of these ideas. I teach a course, which I'm starting in three weeks, uh, in non-Western architecture. So we look at various cultures. And my graduate students, uh, the previous semester, were uh, in a cultural materialist course. And I sort of introduced them to Egypt and the Mayans, who both built pyramids, both had um, hierarchical societies, both had... Uh, uh, fam you know, families of deities, both had brother-sister marriages, both uh, practiced mummifications, both had hieroglyphic writing, on and on and on. But they couldn't have been technologically more different. The Mayans did not have bronze, they didn't even have copper, and they didn't have the wheel. <laughs> right. So, and the Egyptians had all of that. They had, you know, very sophisticated technologies, uh, the wheel, the chariot, draft animals, bronze, none of which the Mayans had. So how did they get so similar if uh, it certainly wasn't due to similar technologies? Yeah, that is so fascinating. Um, and, yeah, one of the things that I um, trace in, in this book, in the, in the patterning instinct, is that... In, if you look at early times in history, you see some remarkable similarities um, among cultures everywhere around the world. So for those, uh, the, those um, tens and hundreds of thousands of years when humans were nomadic hunter-gatherers, there was a very similar kind of um, way in which people viewed the world 
uh, um, no matter where you were, there was this kind of a shamanistic um, sense of spirits everywhere and um, the whole natural well-being, like a family, basically. And then even when agriculture began, um, all the way from the Americas, just like you're saying, to um, Eurasia, all the way to far Eastern Asia, again, there were some real similarities between um, each of the ancient civilizations. But then what's so fascinating is there's a certain place at which different civilizations begin to, um, from a shared foundation, begin to make very different ways of making sense of the world. So, for example, you know, the Aztecs um, might have uh, you know, ended up believing in the importance of um, blood sacrifice, the sense that they had to sacrifice the blood of humans in order to keep the world turning, in order to keep the sun coming up each day. And um, the traditional Chinese went a very different direction and focused hugely on the sense of family lineage and this notion of, um, uh, you know, this kind of hierarchy based on family and community. So each, civil each civilization sort of formed their own way of making sense. And, um, but they all had that shared foundation and the, the pyramids is one example of the different ways in which different civilizations had this desire, or it wasn't really the civilizations, it was the rulers in those civilizations, the ones who basically exploited the mass of people um, around them, who had this desire to sort of reach up towards the heavens in one way or another, to sort of um, establish their grandeur, if you will, um, in this um, just the, the, in the biggest way that they could imagine, which ultimately ended up being the pyramids. Yeah. So uh, let me uh, get a little academic, academic again. And your book sort of takes me back to an earlier point of my own life, a time of Marilyn Ferguson's The Aquarian Conspiracy, Susan, Susan Griffith's uh, Women in Nature, The Roaring Inside of Her, Friedhof Kopper is the turning point, and I noticed that Friedhof Kopper did the introduction to your book, so congratulations. And I'm wondering, um, what do you feel is different now, 20, 30, 40 years later, in our take on these issues that you're talking about from this earlier time? I think that there have been, on the one hand, that way of thinking um, that uh, people like Susan Griffiths and Fritjof Capra uh, initiated in the 80s and beyond um, has actually become deeper and more widespread among certain, um, among certain groups in our culture. And there's been a much wider understanding uh, for example, in Fritjof Capra's work, I think it's foundational for helping to see how this kind of emerging systems view of life is an alternative paradigm, to use a word you used before, um, an alternative worldview, a way of making sense of the world than the modern reductionist uh, one that is mainstream. So that's been a very positive development. And at the same time, that has really also been kind of uh, overwhelmed, if you will, by and so many other developments that have gone on in counter to that. So you've had this huge rise in mainstream thinking of the a kind of neoliberal, individualist-oriented view of the world, which has formed a philosophical foundation for the incredible inequities 
and um, destructive behavior of uh, the mega corporations out there. So while I feel there's been a positive development in terms of an, a growing awareness of our interconnectedness and the system's way of making sense of things, it's even more urgent than it's ever been before for that way of thinking to become more widespread and to really shift people's sense of finding meaning in the world. Yeah, I, great. I agree. So listen, uh, uh, let me just uh, catch up with people who have might just been joining us on the radio. Uh, my guest today is uh, Jeremy Lent, who is a writer and author of The Patterning Instinct. And Jerry, I see that you are uh, founder and president of the nonprofit uh, Lilology Institute, where our listeners can find at liology.org. So tell us, what is the Lilology Institute, and did I pronounce that right? Yeah, it's, it's, unfortunately, it's a little tricky name to pronounce, and some people, people aren't quite sure. And, yeah, the way that I, um, I, just, I pronounce it is the Leology Institute. So Lee and Ology, basically. Okay. And, um, well, you know, we've been talking about worldviews. And what uh, Leology is, is really an invitation uh, or a framework for um, a different kind of worldview, one that is integrative um, and focuses on connections that could enable humanity really to flourish sustainably on the Earth for generations into the future. Um, and... It's something that I've uh, evolved over over a number of years now. As I as I was doing the research for this book, and I got to realize how our worldview is really at the root cause of so much of what is destructive in our society and the unsustainability um, of our of our current path. And the word theology comes from the traditional Chinese word li, which loosely translates as the organizing principles of the universe. So we can think of leology as being like, you know, ology is like a study of or a science of, so like a study of the organizing principles of the universe. And, but the word is deliberately a combination of a traditional Chinese word and um, a Western-based kind of science-oriented word, because the idea about it is it's that we can form an integrative way of finding meaning from the world, one that can recognize that ancient traditions have wisdom and insights that can be useful for us today, but also that those insights don't have to be um, separate from rigorous findings in modern science. And to me, one of the most fascinating things, and I think really exciting and important things, is to realize that and some of the findings in modern systems science, in complexity theory, systems biology, um, chaos theory, and many of these other sciences that focus on connections, um, actually um, validate many of these traditional wisdom insights from uh, traditions like Buddhism and Taoism. And so leology is this kind of place of integrating um, some, how, uh, some traditional wisdom and modern science into um, a way of finding meaning in the world that is more sustainable. Great. So listen, let's again uh, uh, give our more uh, ambitious listeners <clears throat> something to bite into. You uh, mentioned systems, chaos, and complexity theory. So if our listeners are interested in following up on on that, uh, what what 
uh, resources might you recommend that they get into in those fields? Um, well, I mean, certainly, um, it's kind of it, uh, kind of funny to say, but I would actually um, certainly recommend my own book as an introduction Great. because I, I have a and a a couple of chapters where I describe. Um, systems thinking and the whole history of that over the from early Western thought and uh, what I call the moonlight tradition because it was not the more predominant tradition um, but just looking at its roots and, and really kind of describing how it evolved in modern um, thinking and also how it relates to traditional uh, ideas but if somebody wants to and depending on the level of how deeply you want to get into it. If, if you wanted to really read what I think is the best and most comprehensive um, review of the, of the entire like systems view of life, um, there's a book that actually uh, Fritjof Capra, who we mentioned before and who wrote the foreword for my book, um, he co-wrote that with uh, Pierre-Luigi Luisi. It's called The Systems View of Life, A Unifying Vision. Um, and it is comprehensive. It's probably the single most important uh, book on this different paradigm because it looks at the deep underpinnings. It goes into um, a, a lot of detail and explores the implications. Um, so that's if you want to really sort of get serious about understanding. Um, it's, it's a great it's a great way to go. Um, another book that I'd suggest as more of a little bit of an easier kind of intro to some of these thoughts might be there's a book, for example, by somebody called James Gleick, that's G-L-E-I-C-K, called Chaos, Making a New Science, um, which is you know, more readable and gives you a, li- yeah, a little bit of a feel for some of these ideas. Yeah, I'm, I'm a big fan of that book. And it's one of those books that's uh, totally accessible to the, pardon the term, intelligent layperson, but at the same time, uh, really gets into uh, explaining with no math uh, what these scientists were, have been up to. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, as we, since we, we're talking about uh, some of these books, I just wanted to add another one that I found just really exciting and really opened new vistas of understanding um, is uh, by um, a scientist called Stuart Kaufman, and um, his book that, that I would really recommend is called At Home in the Universe, The Search for Laws of Self-Organization and Complexity. Um, and it's quite mathematically focused. So if you're not a, um, a math whiz such as me, I'm not, uh, you know, I've got a, some basic understanding, but nothing special. There might be elements that you kind of want to skim in that book. It gets kind of deep. But some of the more readable aspects really opens um, uh, the mind to this notion of uh, this different way of looking at life that's very scientifically rigorous and um, offers a different way, place of connecting with meaning in the universe. Very important stuff. Great. Um, so uh, I want to put off talking about your suggestions for our future uh, toward the end of the show. We have plenty of time to go. And um, what are, how would you sort of weigh the uh, uh, benefits and disbenefits of science? Uh, you know, what has science brought us and what are the criticisms one might make of it? 
Yeah, well, his, um, what's so interesting that it's, um, I think that we have to be careful when we ask that, that kind of question as to what we mean even by science, per se, um, because that in itself can lead to different ways of understanding what we're talking about. But one thing, um, one, one way to look at this is um, that the, is to look at where the scientific worldview came from. So it came uh, really from this Western mode of thinking. And, and it came really, the, the foundations from ancient Greece onwards was this belief in the power of reason, as they used to sort of call our, our kind of intellectual uh, thoughts. I mean, reason is a bit of a sort of old-fashioned word, if you will. But um, that, that was the way people used to look at this, this sense of what a human being is that the reason connected with the soul. And in early Christian thought, uh, the, believe it or not, we're so, we're so used to seeing this kind of battle between Christianity and science, but actually um, early Christianity served as an incubator for scientific thinking. And through the Middle Ages, which is usually so disparaged, there was this really, there was this growth in the belief that um, the use of reason was the way um, that humans could understand sort of God's mind. And um, as they started to develop laws of, uh, of nature, they really kind of considered them to be God's laws. And that was how the early scientists like Newton, um, Bacon, Kepler, Galileo, that's how they saw their work. They didn't see themselves as being against Christianity. On, on, on the contrary, they saw themselves as really using God's gift of reason to understand how he created the universe. So we sort of see this way in which science actually got formed from this um, really deification, if you will, of reason. Um, and that way of thinking has, was a lot of what led to all of this amazing technological um, you know, boom that we have in today's world and led to hugely higher standards of living for many people around the world. And, you know, it enables us to be talking right now and people to be listening to what we're saying across the world. There's, there's no end of the benefits of technology. But the downside of this kind of split way of thinking comes back to some of those early things we were talking about at the beginning of our, uh, of our discussion, that along with that came this, this notion of conquering nature, and nature is this machine. And if we use this scientific method to understand things really well, um, then we can sort of engineer everything for our own benefit. And while that's been a very powerful uh, sort of metaphor to enhance, um, in, enhance science, it's actually not what all of science is about. It's led to um, a way of thinking about the universe that is often called reductionism. And what reductionism says is that, you know, basically you can understand the universe only by reducing everything to its smallest parts, you know, to um, molecules and molecules to atoms and atoms to quarks. And um, even if you want to understand um, evolution, you need to, like, um, reduce it down to um, the gene as a basic unit of selection. Or in, in each case, it's always like finding that single, um, the smallest unit, and that makes you understand the world. But that actually only enables you to understand one aspect of the world. And that's where I think the modern approach to systems thinking offers 
a, of like a different way of making sense of things, which actually is what our world really needs very badly right now, because we've gone, I think we're in this imbalance where our way of thinking is too reductionistic, and that's led to a way of thinking about the natural world that's not sustainable. So uh, your argument would be that the without, uh, shall we say, rejecting science, there are whole bodies of more holistic, systems-based, uh, just as rigorous science that much of mainstream science ignores. Yes, that is, so. That is, is uh, in a nutshell, what we're what um, what I'm saying, um, and I think this is really important because oftentimes people conflate um, reductionism with the scientific method because it's so it's so fully accepted and so widely believed um, as almost like a belief system that the universe is just nothing but bits of molecules like knocking against each other that. The people think, well, that is science. And so if you reject that, you're rejecting science. But personally, I think science um, and the scientific method of um, transparency, empirical research, being open to new um, information, um, and all the different elements that go with the scientific method, it's one of the greatest gifts um, that uh, our history has, has given humanity. And it's something that is an absolute necessary way of moving forward in a positive in a positive way. But I think you can use that same scientific method to recognize that the system's way of making sense of the universe actually um, tells us things that the reductionist uh, way of making sense misses. And it's not that one is right and one is wrong. It's that um, believing in one without considering the other gives a, a more limited viewpoint. And if you then turn that into a real belief system about the universe, then that becomes wrong. So as you're speaking, uh, some books are occurring to me, like Godel Escher Bach and The Recursive Universe. So, and a lot of this gets summarized uh, from a while back in The Aquarian Conspiracy. So besides your book, uh, what else should our listeners be aware of that presents this point of view? Um, well, um, as I said, there was that uh, book by um, Fritjof Capra on the system's view of life that I, I think is just just great and has only come out in the last few years. So that's, um, that's very important. If people want to um, explore more into some of the deeper philosophical and... Um, phenomenological and, and kind of spiritual aspects of this way of thinking. <clears throat> There's um, a book by um, a philosopher named Evan Thompson that I strongly recommend. It's called Mind in Life, um, Biology, Phenomenology, and the Sciences of Mind. Um, and it's really a, a profound um, investigation into in, into um, that same sort of notion of systems thinking, but what that means philosophically and spiritually. Um, that yeah, that book in my in my research was very helpful in putting a lot of uh, things together to really make sense of the world. Okay, there's um, one this, I, I have to order. <laughs> there's one yeah. for my list. So um, so we've been talking about how we have. You know, ancient human history, hunter-gatherers, and then agriculture, uh, the uh, um, 
um, development of reason among the Greeks, uh, differences between Chinese and Western approaches to uh, how we place ourselves in the universe. Uh, what is it that uh, your book has to say, you have to say, about what we should be doing in our emerging future? That's uh, really a big part of um, sort of where where I go in the book. And um, I think one of the, probably the most important uh, points that I hope readers take away once they finish the book is this recognition that the, the, where, that the future um, is not like a spectator sport. You know, where we as a civilization go is not like something that um, each of us is disengaged from. You know, we can look and say, oh, it's going to go this way, it's going to go that way. But actually, the future is something that we all co-create together by our own choices, the values that we have, the actions that we make. And while it might seem insignificant, well, it's just one of me, and there's seven and a half billion people in the world, so who the hell cares what I do? Um, <clears throat> that part of this recognition of the interdependent system that we all live in um, helps us to realize that actually we never know which of us may have um, a huge kind of impact in around the people that we connect with and the second, third, and fourth order levels of changes that happen through what we do. So we need to recognize that each of us kind of really has a responsibility to look at our place in the world, look at how the actions that we um, do, the way we live our daily lives are affecting the sustainability of where our world is heading and affecting um, inequities that might be around there. And we can choose to make a difference. We can choose to make a difference in um, the daily, uh, our daily choices, in um, how engaged we get in the political process, and how aware we become of uh, you know, ways in which humans as a, um, as a species are interacting with the natural world. Very interesting. Uh, thinking about, you know, this idea of a less <clears throat> mechanistic worldview, uh, one of the people I like to quote is the British uh, mathematician and physicist James Jeans, who already, and he was a, 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 relativist, a relativity physics physicist as well as quantum physicist, and in the 1940s uh, said, the universe begins to look less and less like a great machine and more and more like a great thought. So, uh, you know, these ideas are out there and we can uh, choose to engage with them. Another uh, one that I like to follow is um, John Archibald Wheeler, who says that uh, our you know, there's this issue in quantum theory where what the particle does depends upon how we look at it. So right. the implication being then our consciousness is an integral part of reality. And one of his famous quotes is that the um, uh, our observation affects not only the here and now, but the distant and past. So we can, we can change what happened on a distant star by the way we look at it. <laughs> and yeah, well, it, that's the... Yeah, in quantum yeah, theory, that, you can that really do quite, that. It, and certainly quantum theory, uh, that whole notion of like the sort of spooky nature of it is, 
it's it's just amazing and kind of uh, blows the mind a little bit. Um, so I I hear you on that. And what I what is so interesting is this diametrically opposed way that many reductionist scientists look at the world. So um, I don't know if you're familiar with the Nobel Prize winning uh, physicist Steven Weinberg, who yes. um, now he takes a very yeah like a real sort of fundamentalist, if you will, reductionist view of the world, right, um, right. and he's often been quoted as yeah, saying something like, you know, the more we know of the universe, the more meaningless it appears, um, and so how do you how do you sort of reconcile all these different sort of brilliant uh, Nobel Prize winning scientists, one saying one thing, one saying the other, and you know when I look at it, I think that it's not the um, one is right or wrong, but that it's wrong to just take one perspective and and then take that to mean that that is explaining the entire universe. And like, there's, there are some simple ways to make sense of this. Like, imagine, for example, like you're in and you go to um, an orchestral performance of a Beethoven symphony, you know, and you're just moved by this incredible music, and you feel this amazing stuff going on in your in your whole emotional system. And um, and then imagine as you walk out, somebody like a Steven Weinberg says to you, "Well." You know, you might feel that there was something really meaningful happening, but, you know, I'll tell you, it's all just simple atoms and molecules. And, you know, the orchestra was simply, it was nothing other than um, sound waves um, coming to you in certain patterns. And what you felt was nothing other than neurons connecting with those sound waves and causing hormones to go in your body, and that's all there is. And when Beethoven wrote that, Initially, it was nothing other than prints and um, then, you know, putting ink on a piece of paper, which led to nothing other than those sounds and coming out of nothing other than molecules that formed these instruments. And you go, well, it's really sad, but this person seems to be missing what is really important about life. That, of course, um, I wouldn't have been feeling these things without all that physics. And we're not denying that those, the, those elements that cause this to happen are all there. But it's these connective ways. It's the ways in which um, Beethoven had his own feelings, was able to connect that with a way of communicating, how that could be transmitted over um, hundreds of years, and how other people feeling it in their playing of the music could then affect your feeling. This incredible sense of connectivity over history and within ourselves and within our own sense of making sense of the world. That, um, you know, a composer from hundreds of years ago, his particular feeling tone of the universe could be transmitted to us in this profound way. That has tremendous meaning. And to say that the world is nothing but all the physical stuff is to miss what is really important in the world we live in. So I think that's one simple way of looking at that difference between the more reductionist and a kind of a systems-oriented view of the world. That's really terrific. That's uh, uh, i got to go back and uh, to the archive later when this is posted and listen to that again, because you did a great job of that. You know, my, my late in-laws... Uh, in traveling to Europe, my late mother-in-law would drag everybody to the museums, and uh, uh, my father-in-law was an engineer who couldn't figure out why, you know, you had to go to museums. And I realized they're just different personality types, you know. And certainly uh, someone like Weinberg, who we have to compliment for being responsible for the contemporary standard theory, 
but also someone who uh, sees uh, claims that science describes reality. And if that's the case, I wonder why, you know, does reality change every time science changes? You know, did reality suddenly go from Newtonian to relativistic when Einstein published the special and general theories of relativity? Uh, so, the you know, there are people who are going to feel that way, but just because they claim, you know, they like to think scientifically, they know nothing about art and poetry, to then, for them to then claim that this is a full description of our experience, well, the only way they can make that a full description of our experience is by claiming that a whole chunks of our experience don't exist. Um, or, you know, the, 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 the one that bothers me the most is when one of these figures says, Oh, yes, the emotions are important, too. Uh, Right, exactly. (laughs) I mean, uh, you know, poetry, uh, literature, and art are as valid investigations of ultimate reality as is science, math, and, you know, computer science. Uh, But the computer scientists and the mathematicians think they can describe the brain. I I, am forgetting his name right now, but a major figure in artificial science intelligence. I was just having a standing in the aisles argument with at a conference at Stanford. And uh, I, I said something and, and finally I said, look, we're at Stanford. There are other departments besides physics and math and computer science, such as literature, art, uh, it's, and philosophy. And he said, oh, you mean the fuzzies. <laughs> <laughs> yes, no, I know. <laughs> and, and I don't, you know, what is, I, I don't yeah. want to say he's wrong. I just want to say he experiences that way. I experience it another way. <laughs> right. And what is so fascinating is that then when you try to take a scientific approach to what they call the, the fuzzes, um, what it is is it actually gets far more complex. Um, and... Something I find so fascinating is that actually many physicists nowadays have got to the place where they actually do recognize, um, you know, from what you were saying earlier, just um, just developing the implications of uh, quantum theory. They recognize how the universe is really um, much more complex from a phenomenological point of view. It's not like this objective reality that's right there. But the so-called fuzzier science, like like biology, for example, it's as though all the biologists got jealous of the hardcore physicists, and now are trying to um, sort of take that sort of sense of reductionism and apply it to biology instead. Biology um, and, is an information and, science, right? Yeah, it's um, it's so it's it's so fascinating. But I guess the the one the one thing I would um, touch on again is as you were talking about this notion like somebody like a Weinberg saying that science can explain the world. My personal issue with him is not even talking about, is, is that he's not talking about science. He's actually just talking about reductionism, uh, and which is not in itself science. Reductionism really, um, it's, it's a process to understand things which has been very successful over the last few hundred years. But then when you apply it to Seeing, saying whether or not the universe has meaning. And you're making this leap from taking a methodology and applying it to the universe as an act of faith. 
And that's where reductionism goes from being a very successful and useful methodology to being a belief system. To being and a form a, of religion. Core, yeah, exactly. And these kind of fundamentalist reductionists um, actually are just as strident in defending their point of view against any um, kind of critiques as fundamentalist religious adherents are. So and that's what I feel is a shame, because I don't think that's necessary. I think that um, it, it would be really wonderful if that kind of reductionist way of thinking could open up to recognize, well, okay, that is that's one way of looking at the universe, and there's this other systems way, which incorporates all this kind of fuzzy complexity, but doesn't have to mean giving up the, um, you know, this kind of um, structure of looking at the world. So it, it, it's almost like, you know, for um, thousands of years, there was this no, approach to geometry, like um, Euclidean geometry. And that was viewed as that was geometry. There was one set of laws, and that's the way it worked. And then in the 19th century, people recognized that there's ways of looking at geometry on, on a sort of in a three-dimensional curvature, and they developed what was called non-Euclidean geometry, which developed a new set of rules, a new set of understanding. But that, that didn't make Euclidean geometry wrong. It just showed that Euclidean geometry was limited to a particular um, sort of plane of understanding. And similarly, looking at systems thinking doesn't say that reductionism is wrong. It just shows that it, it is right within a certain limited framework. So um, we're coming toward the end here. We have a few more minutes. Let me go back and ask you uh, what else... Oh, before I do that, uh, I'm reminded uh, that the, I don't know what to call him, mathematician, computer scientist Stephen Wolfram likes to say that our system of logic is one of about 50,000 different logic systems that, no, I think it's it's 50,000th in the scheme of all possible logics that he can map in his uh, in his uh, hyper universe. But That's amazing. Yeah. Let me, let me just ask, uh, what uh, what what more thoughts um, uh, do you have about the future? Either what is going to happen, or more importantly, what we should be doing. Right. So when we when we do think about the future, and this is something I explore in this uh, final chapter of my book. The chapter is called Trajectories to Our Future. <clears throat> I actually um, looked at three possible <clears throat> very different ways in which our society and our human experience could be transformed in this century. And, <clears throat> and one is um, really a, a real serious possibility of the, of the actual collapse of our civilization. And, and when you look at the way in which we're overusing resources, um, and you just look at how, um, just like at the moment, we're kind of essentially using resources, something like three times um, what the Earth can sustain, and we're continuing to grow at this exponential rate year after year. It's quite frightening, um, where it's not just climate change, <clears throat> but just any resource we look at, um, these system we're kind of overshooting, and each of these places where we overshoot then affects the other one, creating incredible instabilities. So that's a, a real fear that I think we should all be aware of. And then there's another uh, trajectory, which is 
you know, here I'm, I'm here in, in Berkeley in the San Francisco Bay Area, and we have this kind of Silicon Valley-inspired sense of the possibilities of what can even be called the singularity, that technology is moving at such an incredible pace that um, even the human experience itself could be transformed. We could be, become genetically engineered and have like neural interfaces with the Internet and become almost like um, sort of merging with, uh, with each other and with the, uh, the machine world or whatever. Um, and that is also a very um, realistic scenario in many ways. But I think what people miss is that that would only be true if it were to come true for the affluent minority. And so I explore a scenario that I call techno-split, which is where the affluent minority in the world do get to enjoy all these amazing benefits of technology. But meanwhile, billions upon billions of the rest of the world are left with essentially the collapse, dealing with the ravages of climate change and resource over-exploitation. And I think that's, there's a real moral issue there in terms of how we look at ourselves in our, and our shared humanity as to that kind of scenario. But there's a third scenario that I believe is possible, and it's what I call uh, like a great a transformation of society. And this would be a scenario where we actually, um, we actually move in this place of connectedness, recognizing our shared humanity, finding a way to um, live sustainably on the earth, and finding a way to use our greater awareness and technology for um, a, a fair and a more, uh, more connected world together. But honestly, to get to that place would involve uh, transforming some of our underlying values, which gets back to the, uh, this initial point that our values are what shape history. And there we'd have to look at the values that have led to this um, global uh, corporate um, capitalist system that is really consuming the earth at a faster and faster pace and, is, and causing these incredible inequities. And something has to change in that underlying system for us to get to a more sustainable future. So um, from that point of view, um, uh, let me think how to ask this. If we stop thinking in a reductionist a linear, well, <laughs> to go back to the 60s and 70s and all that, if we stop thinking in a linear logical reductionist uh, manner and we think in the kinds of manners that are suggested throughout your book, um, what do they suggest that we should be doing in order to assure a better future? That we should be and looking at the world, focusing on our connectedness rather than focusing on, our, on a sense of separation. And so that means, uh, for example, connectedness um, within ourselves, like feeling into uh, really kind of focusing on the quality of our lives. So rather than uh, focusing on how much consumer goods we, we get and how much status we can have, um, really focusing on what we can do to enhance um, the, the quality of our felt experience in life. It means connecting and um, recognizing our connection with other human beings. And rather than focusing on our own parochial interests of what's good for our family or our small community, what works for us, for the whole community of humanity as a whole? What can enable humanity to thrive? And finally, 
the connectedness with the natural world, realizing that we're not separate from nature, we are nature. And for us to um, work towards the flourishing of the natural world is to really ensure long-term human flourishing too at the same time. Uh, Terrific. So we're wrapping up. And uh, anything else you want to say before we sign off? Um, Well, just thank you for uh, what I think has been a really deep and uh, really um, exploratory discussion. It's pretty important philosophical and you know, it, it's issues about, about our world. And thank you for that. I really enjoyed engaging in that. And um, as I said, my, my hope is that when people read my book, at the end of it, they'll get left with a sense of really being able to ask themselves about their own worldview, their own way of making sense of the world, and getting a more sort of conscious awareness of some of these ideas that we take for granted, where they actually came from, and what we can shift for, um, for sustainable flourishing. Great. So my guest has been Jeremy Lent. His new book is The Patterning Instinct, A Cultural History of Humanity's Search for Meaning. Thank you, Jeremy, and you'll find more about Jeremy on Lyology, L-I-O-L-O-G-Y dot org. So this is John LaBelle. This is Visionaries. We're here every Monday at 10 a.m. It could be any time in your part of the world, depending upon where you are. And this show, if you want to recommend it to your friends, will uh, shortly be online at visionaries.podbean, P-O-D-B-E-A-N, as in nancy.com. And uh, you'll find all of our over three dozen back shows there. Very interesting topics. And see you again next week.